0: Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. All right, what's up, Gromies?
1: Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I'm Keisha, one of your co-moderators and apparently the only person on the broadcast that's not in Pullman right now. Mandy, what's going
0: on? Hey, Keisha. Yeah, that's right. I'm in Pullman in a slightly different studio than Jason and Seth right now. But hey, Keisha. Hey, everyone. Um, Yeah, it's so good to see you guys. It's so good to be here for episode 72. We're also going live over on YouTube. So if you're logging on over there, make sure you send us your questions and I'll make sure I get those to the team. If you're active on social media, be sure you're following us on all the platforms. So we're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn and Social Club. And don't forget, there's still time to nominate Arroyo Office Hours at the MJ's for Bi- MJ BizCon this year. We'll share the link on our Instagram page right after this. Please nominate us for Cannabis Podcast of the Year. It would make our days. Oh my gosh. All right, you guys, let's do this. We got a ton of your crop steering questions in this week, so I'm going to throw it back over to you, Keisha. Thank you so much, Mandy, Seth, and Jason. How you guys doing over there?
2: Doing well.
1: Yeah ready to get the party started. Let's do it. We got a lot of questions. I'm gonna start with one we got a while back. Angus wrote us in with a multi-part question. That seems like a good one to start with. So he wrote, what's up, Arroya? Angus here from the Great White North. I have a couple questions for you guys. At the beginning of the flower stage, when you wanna steer generative, if you get to your irrigation window two hours after lights on, but haven't got your water content down to around 35% MC, I assume he means moisture content, let's say, Would you shift your irrigation window and apply a P2 if needed later on or just start P1s?
2: So, I mean, usually your transpiration rate, I mean, the amount of dryback that you're going to see in a fixed dryback window um, is going to be dependent on how fast your plants are growing and the size of the media that you have um, and or if you didn't hit field capacity the day before. So, yeah, that one to two hours after lights on is typically when I like to irrigate. Um, for the most part regardless of my strategy that's when i like to begin irrigations Uh, if you're generative typically we try not to do any p2s if we can avoid it Uh, it sounds like maybe you've got the opposite problem where you're just not hitting the transpiration rates the amount of dryback that you want at that point um you know as those plants are getting bigger in the early stage of flower sometimes that's going to happen and you're just going to try and keep pushing generative, um, the best you can, uh, and the transpiration rate is going to get a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more until it starts to, to level off. Um, so yeah, that could be one case. And, or if you're just in too large a substrate, um, or your plants weren't quite ready to be in the flower, this could all be reasons that you're not seeing a big, as big a dryback as you expect that point in the plant life cycle.
3: Yeah. I know. I know in the past we've talked about this a bit, but we'll kind of jump into it again, that that dry bag number is actually a very dynamic number and pretty specific to the type of media you're using your growing environment and the size of plant compared to your pot so if you were in let's say cocoa versus rockwool depending on the brand and the mix of uh, husk and pith we might see a 45 percent vwc field capacity we might see a 65 percent so that's going to depend and the reality is if our plant to pot size ratio is really good. We want to see at least a 10 to 15% dryback. So even if you're trying to push, let's say 25, as long as you're hitting 10 to 15, that tells us we've got enough oxygen infiltration to the root zone that we're not going to go anaerobic and that it's good. So I mean really without knowing what your field capacity is, it's hard to say, but typically as long as you can hit that 10 to 15%, we wouldn't want to hold off on irrigation. We'd still want to keep it in that same window 2 hours after lights on and bring it back up to field capacity if you aren't hitting that dry back start looking at you know your whole environment it might not just be that plant to pot size we've certainly seen situations where people are in a one gallon pot even with a four foot tall plant and they're not even you know they're getting maybe a 10 percent dryback. okay well we know the plant to pot size is pretty good um what else is going on in the environment you know there, there can be a lot of factors if you're running human we're not going to see the same kind of transpiration rate if you're too dry we're not going to see the same kind of transpiration rate if everything else lines up but at the end of the day your lights are only putting out 550 ppfd let's say we're not going to see that transpiration rate so there's a lot of factors that go into that dryback, and uh it's just important to look at the whole problem and whole equation and figure out where you might be lacking in your specific environment um like i said really really going back to it's about having a minimum healthy dryback and not necessarily copying every tech you see on say taking it from 60 to 35 or 55 to 35 it's very situationally specific
1: I mean, amazing. Thank you guys so much for dropping that knowledge. Um, I have another question from Angus, but we, uh, we prioritize the live questions first. So Josh posted something here in the chat. Josh, I'm going to read it, but you're also welcome to unmute yourself and speak to it. He wrote, what up, what's up, guys? Thanks as always for all the knowledge. Thoughts on under canopy lighting versus side
0: canopy lighting versus neither? Let's start there. Josh, anything you want to add to that?
1: maybe not.
2: So, yeah, you know, a couple things. I mean, one of the obvious is that um, plants uh, are going to be, have better photosynthesis when the photons are hitting the leaf surface on top. Um, I mean, that's where their receptors are located at. And so when, you know, we are adding under canopy light, I always figure, Hey, the best that we can do is just have uh at least as much more yield as adding that much more light would be um and so typically you know sure we can get a little bit better density on the the lower larfiness uh we could get a little bit better light penetration in the canopy that being said um you know if the, the photons are hitting the bottom of the leaf surface uh some of that's not going to be as efficient as if we had really good light penetration from above
3: yeah i mean i think the key there is realizing what kind of effect you're looking for um there are some underlighting companies coming out that uh, I think don't promise anything over the top. Really, what we're seeing in application is a lot of people—not a lot, a select few people—starting to utilize under canopy lighting in situations where they're looking to improve that ratio of, you know, good quality jarble a bud to b bud. So, what we're seeing is, you know, the best success with those doesn't come from boosting your yield so much; it's just increasing light deeper in the canopy, specifically. In LED rooms is kind of where we're seeing some of the best results in this, where we don't get as good a light penetration. And it's helping growers, you know, finish their plant completely rather than having a third of the plant that actually has purple buds and then another two thirds that are still green. So, just like Jason said, you know, it's the real thing is balancing like, okay, number one, data is showing that we're not going to see huge yield increases from this. Number two, what is our market position? Is it worth it to go put these lights in? And then number three, looking around and probably if I was considering making that purchase, I would talk to some of these companies and see if you can talk to anyone that's currently running them so that you can get a realistic idea and say, okay, what is, what is this going to do for me? This, these dollars that I'm putting into this project, Um, it's kind of a new, new technique we're seeing out there. So there's a lot of new data coming in. It's really interesting, but like, like with anything, it all depends on your specific business situation. And if that's a good investment for you.
2: Yeah, sorry, Josh, we did kind of just generalize under canopy. I was re- thinking, hey, your, your question is specifically side lighting versus uh, from bottom lighting under canopy. And um, side lighting might be slightly more efficient just because we're going to have a little bit uh, better surface area that, that's capturing those photons on the top of the leaf than if it were directly below. So, yeah. so- science would suggest that um, you're probably better, better poised to be in the, the side lighting than bottom lighting.
3: Yeah, and I, part of the way I'd look at it is if you're going to get involved with that, you know, the, the standard SOP for how to use under and intercanopy lighting is still being developed. So we're, we're seeing people that are experimenting with different heights with their under canopy lighting, either, you know, down completely below or getting more into intercanopy lighting with some of the low wattage LEDs, just trying to get a better light spectrum down in there. So really, it's, uh, it's an area with no guaranteed results yet. But if you can afford it and you really like playing around with experimenting with plant science, uh, I'd say it's it's an interesting you know, rabbit hole to go down. But again, if you're in a situation where you don't have the extra cash, it might not be the most cost effective way to approach your situation.
2: Yeah, you know, Anytime that we're making changes within the canopy or how that, that plant's physiology is reacting to the environment, you know, make sure that we are taking leaf surface temperatures and uh, got appropriate airflow in there to accommodate for any increased transpiration rates lower on the plant. Um, so do keep in mind that you know, making that change you know, may not just be an A to B comparison. You might have to upgrade some of the other uh,
3: capacities in the room as well. Absolutely. That's a good point. We're looking at the top percent maybe. of getting performance out of your crop. If you're already struggling with dehumidification, getting appropriate PPFD in the first place, there might be other investments you wanna make before investing, like I said, in that top couple percent of quality.
1: Thank you guys for that overview. Yeah, it's been, I've been seeing a lot more conversation around this um, on social media as well. Actually Bilbo posted a question since we're on this topic. He wrote, can you speak to intercanopy lighting that is deployed in commercial ag? Anything else we can say there?
3: Yeah. I mean, they use low wattage LEDs with usually kind of more of a far red spectrum. That's to help them push a little bit of that ripening later on that we're seeing. Typically, uh, the ones that I've seen are not very high wattage lights. So we're not actually pumping that much energy into the under canopy. It's more about exposing those buds to that spectrum of light that they need to see to help them ripen up. So in terms of commercial ag, we we see them a little bit, but this is another one of those areas where cannabis is largely pushing development because if under or intercanopy light gets us somewhere with cannabis, it's gonna be worth it, more worth it on a square footage basis than let's say tomatoes. So we haven't really seen, and tomatoes are a whole different crop. Intercanopy lighting can do a lot more with them, but typically there's a lot of logistics that go into managing how that's gonna work. So we, we haven't seen massive adoption yet because it is kind of an expensive technology, not just to buy necessarily, but to implement. If any one of you cultivators out there can imagine like putting all your plants in and then setting up an additional lighting system under your canopy, managing the height of that, and then dealing with it during routine plant maintenance. You know, that's another thing to think about if suddenly you have a step where defoliation and setting those now takes twice as long at three weeks. Maybe that's something you want to consider.
2: We, we, we can always go back to some, you know, some of the, the cheap improvements, uh, you know light colored walls, light colored trays, light colored uh, epoxy flooring. Those are all going to be just kind of like your first step at getting more light under canopy as you reflect off of it. So, uh, you know, also keep in mind that, hey, there's some um, jerry rigging back in the back in the days that, uh, you know, weren't advanced technology, but are definitely helpful.
1: Well, one thing's for certain is cultivators are an innovative bunch. So cool to to have this conversation going and looking forward to talking about it more as we go on. Um I'm gonna send it over to Mandy because we got a lot happening on YouTube. We're gonna alternate here. So over to you, Mandy.
0: Thanks, Keisha. Oh my gosh, I did not know that. Lighter walls can help you guys with uh, lighting. That's amazing. Yeah, we had a question from Poppy Grows. What's a proper IPM regimen to follow for someone who's new to integrated pest management?
2: Uh, preventative
3: one, yeah. I mean, that all really starts with good SOPs, making sure you're not bringing unwanted pests into your environment. Start out with a clean slate. Uh, that being said, depending on where you're at in your growing journey, you might already have some bugs like some mites. So, basically, we're looking at you know some basic IPM principles. Number one, you're going to want to pick something. There's a whole variety of pesticides out there. Whether you want to use something pyrethrin-based, horticultural oil-based, um, there's there's a wide range. But typically, one of the best approaches I've seen is to clean everything very well. Don't bring soil in from outside of your grow. So if you go get clones, I mean, if you're buying teens, well, that's something. But if you or if you do buy teens, maybe your best bet is to uh, quarantine those and clone them before you ever bring them into your veg or production environment. Uh, Great SOPs, and then you know my go-to is usually a pretty heavy knockdown spray right when I move everything in because I just took them through the hallway or whatever other environment out of my hopefully clean bedroom, and then we're gonna follow it up with another two to three knockdown sprays, usually a little lighter, mixing up our mode of action, and then I prefer to use biologics, so beneficial bugs that like to eat the other bud bugs. After about two weeks into flower, once I get some bud formation going, because I really don't want to be spraying my buds with anything that's going to affect quality, potency, or flavor. And, you know, I know there's products out there. Um, we don't have to name any here, but usually the horticultural oil band, it's, it's pretty unregulated. You know, there's a lot you can spray on later in flower. However, I don't know about you, Jason, but I don't think I want to spray cottonseed cotton seed or clove oil or peppermint oil on my buds very long before I go to harvest them. Even if that isn't going to necessarily fundamentally change it. Or if I do a good job, it's prevention is always way better than having to run into a compromise. And to me, um, you know, I've never really pulled it apart, but I imagine there's still going to be some traces of peppermint oil, for instance, on my finished bud, which is something I don't want, even if that's not necessarily going to fail a health and safety test you'd really just never want to spray anything on your buds and a big part of that too is later in flower you know we talk a lot on here about botrytis powdery mildew it's hard to spray away something that thrives on wet plant matter so the cleaner you can keep everything from day 1 the better time you're going to have going later and later into flower and then remember some simple sops like when you get if let's just build this down to a microcosm here let's say you have two flower rooms a veg room and a clone room or tent Your procedure for the day should be to get there check your clones check your veg check your youngest flower room and then check your older never go backwards in your cycle and risk moving bugs back in the plant's life cycle
2: Yeah, um that was a really great overview i kind of was cutting it short uh one of the one of the things i think a lot of times is overlooked as well is just simple plant health um so you know as a preventative measure if we can have the healthiest plants as possible that's definitely going to give us a huge advantage as far as trying to um, eradicate them further down the road. Um, so thinking about, you know, silica additives, uh, really good environments as far as humidity, temperatures, light levels, and uh, airflow especially are going to help with that.
3: Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point too, Jason. Healthy plants uh, have less pests, have less diseases. Um, it turns out cannab- or cannabis is, you know, it builds these wonderful trichomes with these interesting terpenes and oils. And a big function of that is, uh, those seeds are nice and safe in there from bugs. It's pretty hard to crawl in and get them once the plant's healthy. So that is definitely step one. And I'll just say it again, stay clean, <laughs> the, the, the more clean you can stay, the better time you're going to have. That's if you're wondering how some people will claim that they run no pesticides in a certain facility. Well they're putting just as much effort on everything that walks in through the doors and making sure it's clean as anyone else would put into spraying and remediating pests once they have
0: them. Wow, that was so much good advice. Um, Thank you all for that. Thanks for that question, Poppy. Um, We also had a question from Raymond, it's about pH. When can we see Arroyo implement pH monitoring inside of of micro medium?
2: uh probably not any time in the the real soon future um there are just some technical challenges as far as uh continuously monitoring pH in in situ so inside of a substrate um you know, I, I do investigate and i look uh, fairly continuously for new technologies out there that can do this kind of thing uh i just haven't found one personally that that i'm comfortable leaving in situ and trusting the readings from
3: yeah i mean a big part of it guys is we're trying to look inside of a pretty narrow ph range so you know number you know your best bet is always especially if you're at a commercial facility go invest two or three thousand dollars in a good scientific grade uh lab bench top ph monitor yes you're going to pee, you're going to calibrate it every day <laughs> that you want to use it but that's what's going to tell you is actually accurate and then to jason's point um over the years plenty of probes have come out that claim to be able to measure soil ph in application, we see not the most accurate results. Now, if you have the ability to go pull samples and then go stick it with your you know, mobile probe and try to get some relative readings, but you know, if we want everything to stay between 5.6 and 6.1, that's a pretty narrow range for a not very accurate instrument to be able to read, and you want your results to be as accurate as possible.
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, a lot of times I see people using pH sensors that are, uh, just accurate to the 10th and that's not even necessarily accurate. That's just the resolution of their readout. And I always prefer one that's down to the, the hundreds. So I know, Hey, you know, which side of my, is this thing saying that I'm, I'm sliding to, like, you know, is it sliding to 6.6 or is it sliding to 6.4 or 6.5? Um, versus, you know, say if it's 6.54, I know, Hey, I'm right, right in the middle here. So, um, um, usually, uh, some of the sensors that have that higher resolution actually might have a little bit higher accuracy as well. Um, and so, you know, you know, even though we are saying, Hey, it's probably not gonna be soon that we have a in situ reading device, I always encourage people to monitor pH, uh, runoff, uh, it should be a, at least at the very minimum, a daily practice where you're looking at the pH runoff, uh, after irrigations or during irrigations. Um, so capture some runoff in some method. If you do have uh, ability to capture all your runoff, you know, you can have a, a pH sensor that's left in that system and giving you uh, real time feedback as well.
3: Yeah. And, you know, and another technique I've seen that can be useful, but it's you, you've really got to monitor how exactly you implement it is using, you know, large, large syringes, basically <laughs> 20 or 30 plus CC with a really fat needle tip on it and sucking out of your actual media throughout the day. But the important thing to realize is when you just put on, let's say your P1s and you've reached field capacity, that water you're pulling out is not going to have the same pH as the water you would pull out right before your P1s. That balance is going to change. And that's part of why we look at runoff is that's a metric that we can not necessarily predict, but relatively predict, and it's steady day to day. So if you were, let's say, sending someone in to go pull pH samples every day, it better be at the exact same time in respect to the watering to really try to compare those results and the same thing goes with your, your runoff collection you know if you've got a runoff tray out there and your your sop doesn't say hey you need to go collect that runoff within let's say 30 minutes to an hour of the end of p1 when it should have occurred we can expect to see some ph drift into that due to, due to evaporation and raising of the ec and ionic concentration in that runoff so that's another part of the puzzle if uh, you aren't taking those readings at the most accurate time, you you may already not have good readings to work with. So that's really where to start with it is keep it basic, keep it simple, and then invest in the equipment that is tried and true and gives you accurate results.
0: Awesome. Thanks for that. Poppy Gross had another question. Any tips on re a plant that's been harvested already? I left some middles and lowers. Just any advice? This is my first time re-vegging.
3: Uh, good luck. Don't don't expect to clone it. Well, you can clone it, but I wouldn't clone it for a production run for quite a long time. You know, you might actually get two or three generations into clones before you see resuming of normal plant growth habits.
0: Got it. Uh, we have a question from jay what's your opinion on far red light supplementation pre and post lights on
2: pre and post lights Uh, i don't have any experience exposing them to any kind of light pre and and post uh typical photo period
3: um yeah i think what we're looking at there typically is more like emulating dawn and dusk right like where the sun's not quite peaked out all the way and we get a little bit more of that red hue because the the light rays are coming through more of the atmosphere coming in it's just an angularity problem i really haven't seen data to support whether or not you know ramping that up or down is going to have a big effect what we have seen though is the supplementation of far red later in flower tends to simulate the kind of spectrum you're going to see naturally during the fall which these plants have spent millions of years adapting to so that spectrum change is something we can use to help push plant ripening a little bit. And that's part of why we see, you know, uh, some differences in let's say HPS and very bright white led bulbs.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, interestingly enough from some of the science that I've seen, usually it's, it's less about the balance of the different light spectrums, but just the overall amount that's available in each spectrum range. Um, And like Seth was talking about, you know, science has, proven at this point that far reds are you know, producing a, a little bit more activity in our chlorophyll bees um, and some of our um, secondary metabolites like phytochromes, uh, cryptochromes, uh, those types of things, which are usually uh, more related to uh, finishing type of chemicals. So uh, improving our terpene profile, increasing THC, uh, those type of um, chemological
3: responses from the plant. Yeah. So we, we know it's important um if you want to experiment with that please please share some results with me after a few rounds see if you've noticed any and i mean my my guess if anything you would see it'd be similar to running that deeper nighttime diff just like far red supplementation changing your spectrum a little bit what we're probably trying to push is potency um that being said we're indoors during your plant's life cycle if you suddenly went from going 12 on 12 off to now we're going uh more like 14 on eight you know eight off or 14 on 10 off sorry 24 hours in a day <laughs> but if you're going more towards uh that you might be changing that photo period effectively because that far red might actually i'm gonna say wake the plant up but it's gonna start doing something with that light just because we can't see it quite that strongly
2: yeah and if you go the other way uh say shortening up to the 10 10- hour photo period with your one hour of far red on on both ends of the um of the day of the photo period just think about what your dli uh, impact might be as well
3: yeah absolutely we're not getting as much uh light energy into it and for some of those strains that and we've all seen if you've grown quite a few some strains really do uh fill out in those last two weeks of ripening some strains bulk up pretty good and are really dense along the way but If you're lowering your DLI and you have a strain that typically stays kind of small until like, let's say week six, week seven, you might not want to back off on that. You you might want to keep driving that plant with full energy so it can actually pack on the weight you're looking for.
0: This is so interesting. Um, yeah, growers, leave us your tips for uh, and your experience with light supplementation. That's super interesting. Um, we're still getting questions over on YouTube. Mountainscape Solution wants Mountainscapes Solutions wants to know what are your thoughts on reusing and recycling cocoa.
2: I would absolutely love to recycle cocoa. Uh, you know, any t- any chance I get, we'll use it for uh, some type of garden outdoor. Uh, as far as you know, keeping your facility clean. If you do have intentions of recycling cocoa um, and bringing it into an indoor grow facility or even a, a real clean greenhouse, then you might think about what treatment methods are necessary to. Um, Make sure you're not bringing any um, pathogens, bacterias that are unwanted. Uh, any of the cocoa that you're getting from most manufacturers these days is gonna be baked and very very sterile. Um, after we're growing in it, uh, that's not gonna be the case necessarily. So uh, you might definitely wanna think about the cost and or the precautions of uh, of recycling it into uh, indoor production. But uh, for, for outdoor, absolutely, pre-charged with nutrients.
3: Yeah. So, uh, I guess, I guess what I have to say might differ a little bit, but uh, classic, you know, vegetable production, horticulture in general, you do not want to be planting typically even the same genus of plant into the same soil year after year, we're going to see, uh, an increase in soil-borne disease, especially soil-borne disease that is specific to that plant genus. So if you are taking, let's say all of your indoor cocoa and you start getting some Pythium buildup, anything like that in the facility, then you take that to your outdoor cannabis beds you're just continuing that you've got all these rotten roots in there that all they're doing is harboring that bacteria for a long time so as far as reusing and recycling goes all about it but do it in a way that's responsible for your farm and is going to continue to make you money if you're concerned about like let's say recycling it within your facility get some living beds and some forklifts and then just swap them out every once in a while because you're never going to be able to effectively clean that root mass out and once you cut the plants all of that organic matter that's left from the roots is going to rot because we also haven't we don't actually have soil that pythium or whatever else is in there that's going to cause it to rot is pretty much the only biological activity we've got going on so if you are going to reuse that you know basically the move is to take it to a spot where you can safely compost it reach your good composting temperatures so you're essentially pasteurizing your media and then go amend it and use it outside of a cannabis facility Um, that's going to be your safest way to really utilize that and that's where i think we're going to hopefully see uh, more partnerships between let's say vegetable producers in specifically like california for instance uh, and cannabis producers Um, in other places like when you're bringing used media back into a greenhouse for instance Like I said, you, you might want to be looking at more of a bulk approach, low input and have an easy way to go empty that out every once in a while. It's, it's, it's a sad thing that cannabis isn't more environmentally friendly now, and this is one of the ways we can kind of push it forward, but it, it takes more work than just hosing it down and repotting it and using it. Unfortunately.
2: Yeah and I'm I'm glad you actually brought up the the kind of the organic side of that as well because I was thinking in in my head I I was visualizing composting it and reusing it and I, I didn't do a very good job explaining that part of things so uh obviously making sure you get that organic breakdown uh in the way that you are reusing it would be vital.
3: Yeah and and also you know if if you really want to do that really just put in some legwork and look into different composters around you what they can do with it you know even though cannabis is kind of outside of a lot of the organic regulation that we see in other things, um, your salt charged cocoa is not, it's not okay for organic vegetable production. They won't get that certified organic on there because you've got media loaded with artificial salts. So keep all that in mind. And, uh, like I said, one of the best might be finding someone that does do there, there are local compost producers out there. And that's certainly something to explore like, Hey guys, what can we do with this? I don't want it to go to the landfill. And then also, you know, even from there, a lot of landfills are composting facilities, too. So you might be able to talk to them and say, hey, do you have a better option? Can I make sure instead of bringing this in in contractor bags, we bring it in a dump truck and put it into your compost?
2: And those, those salts aren't artificial. They're just they're synthetic.
3: Synthetic, Yeah, there we go. They're real.
2: They're not fake. <laughs> if, you've tasted, uh, if you've ever tasted some of your nutrient mix. You'll know that's all too real.
0: (laughs) What are you guys eating when I'm not watching? Uh, These were great notes, super good considerations, but um, I love how we're actually asking about how we can recycle and reuse um, parts throughout the process. Um, I think that we're getting some live questions in our chat, so I'm going to pass it back
1: to Casey for those. Thank you so much, Mandy. Gosh, we're covering so many interesting topics on this show. Uh, Josh uh, posted a comment here when we were talking about under canopy and intercanopy lighting. He wrote great info. We're playing around in R and D and had some manufactured with lots of red and far red, like you mentioned. For enviro and PPFD, were decently dialed in. So thank you for that, Josh. You've got to keep us posted. Um, I wanted to also get to his next question that he posted here. He writes: Input EC target number for HPS versus LED would you say root zone target numbers are fairly similar one gallon cocoa for substrate what do you guys think
2: um yeah so you know usually just as a ex- extremely generalized baseline uh typically be around 3.0 to 3.5 for hps's in a you know well dialed environment um for healthy plants and then a lot of times between 3.5 and four zero for leds and that's Usually pushing on the higher end of what uh, people are typically used to using, uh, but sorry, we're getting a little bit of feedback in here. Um, but it's uh, it's amazing what these plants can take as far as nutrients and light levels when everything's balanced and optimized, and we're providing CO2 supplementation. Um, really, what it comes down to is when it's being run under LEDs, we're going to have a uh, slightly less amount of total water that's brought up through the plants. So we need some slightly higher concentration levels. Uh, that's the lower leaf surface temperature,
3: a uh, little bit, a little bit, more ideal environment typically because uh, we can run them slightly hotter. Yeah. And you know, one, one important thing to consider there too, is when we're talking about, you know, HPS bulbs, we're talking about a single light source, no matter how old or new your HPS is. So generally speaking, we're going to have a hot spot and a lot more dim spot around the radius of the area that that light lights up, and of course we have crossover from our other lights. But most of your canopy is not going to be at that same hot, that same PPFD level as your hot spot right in the middle. So when we look at LEDs, a big part of it is you know just as Jason said with those HPS, we're going to have more transpiration because a higher leaf surface. With LEDs, because we don't have that much radiant heat going out with CO two ac and everything else is in line we can actually crank that up to a much higher ppfd level at the canopy especially given that we don't you know like i said we don't have those that heat stress so we're not going to burn half the plant while we're trying to illuminate the whole thing up to a high level now if we can get the whole plant not just the ends of a few branches up to you know 1200 plus ppfd we have a lot more photosynthesis going on on a lot more plant structure building and we need more, uh, you know, we always say plant nutrients, they're more like plant vitamins. So when you're trying to build structure, those aren't what actually builds your structure, but they're what allows the plants to build enzymes and, you know, power other process or assist in other processes, not power them. That's the key. So just like if, uh, you know, Jason and I wanted to go to the gym and start bulking up, we gotta, we gotta eat, eat our protein and everything else, but you also have to take your vitamins to make sure your joints are good. That your body's functioning properly, and the harder you're pushing that energy consumption in any biological organism, the more pieces you're going to need to replace.
2: I had to also get back a little bit to the root of the question here. Would be uh, substrate EC is versus feed EC. Um, You know, small changes in feed ec can make huge changes in root zone EC, and realistically, when, you know, I'm looking at a different feed for, you know, a different type of light source, a lot of times my, uh, substrate DCs are going to be very similar between the two. Um, you know, really what we're trying to do is just, is just keep a, a healthy balanced environment in the root zone. And so, uh, you know, if, say, let's say, you know, I'm just recommended a, only a 0.5 difference in feed DCs for HPSs versus, uh, LEDs, uh, a 0.5, Difference in root zone EC, you know, might be a dynamic root zone EC of say five to 12 when I'm pushing some early generative steering, you know, a 0.5 saying, Hey, I'm 5.5 to 12.5 is not going to result in a very big difference
3: to the plant. Yeah. And that's, you know, that brings a good point. If you, if you're ever to ask either of us, like we're walking through you through your first run ever growing cannabis, I think Jason and I would both tell you start running by a three, start running with a 3.0 let's get some sensors in there and then we're going to judge whether we actually need to add more to get that stacking on because if you keep your feed EC static you're eliminating a variable in the system so if you're in there changing hey i think i need to up or down my feed every single day it's going to be really hard to you know accurately predict how that feed is going to affect your EC and the real skill that we want to get people on board with in terms of controlling EC is going hey you've got two real levers to pull you know you can pull uh push the button get more irrigation more runoff and try to bring the ec down that way or less runoff try to bring the ec up that way and then we can change the feed now the feed is going to make the other two hard to predict so let's just work with the variables that we can easily control and typically you know i would say thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, cannabis harvests have proven that they can take a 3.0 just fine and you know we we'll always say it if you go back in time to feeding primarily liquid nutrients and a lower ec we're pushing a lot of water generally flushing back or raising up to around that 2.5 3.0 so don't overthink it keep it simple and make it so you can predict and have good control because that's going to be a huge key in consistency one run that's ranging between a 2.5 and a 5 ec it's not gonna have completely different results, but it could be quite noticeable when we start looking at potency, uh, you know, jar nug look, everything else at the end compared to one that was running in, let's say a six to 11 range.
1: Fantastic, you guys. Wow, such good information. Um, Josh, one more question he posted in the chat here I want us to get to. Um, he wrote, also we touched on this, but never clarified last week. Danger zone during bulking for lights off VPD. Don't go below 1.0. Don't go below 1.0. There it is. Mic drop.
3: Yep. Once yep. you've got, once you've got buds developing any VPD below about a 1.0 and going below 70 degrees Fahrenheit is going to open you up to mold formation.
1: Yeah. And, okay. and,
3: and production loss. Cause you're, you're losing transpiration. If plants aren't uptaking much water overnight, they can't uptake as much nutrients either, because that's why they're pulling water in. um, It's a balance.
1: All right. Stay out of the danger zone, y'all. And then Josh posted a comment here a conversation about HPS versus versus LEDs. He wrote, we're usually 3.5 LED, but looking at an HPS project, so doing some homework. We haven't grown under HPS since starting to implement steering strategies. So Josh, good luck out there. Keep us posted. And I'm going to send it over to Mandy. What's happening on YouTube?
0: Yeah, we got another question about supplemental lighting. Jay wants to know... How would you add the far reds toward the end of the flowering cycle, continuous, staggered, or just at specific times?
3: I mean, personally, to keep it simple, flip them on when you start ripening and go from there. Um, like we said, there, there hasn't been quite enough research out there to justify running an extra complicated schedule. So I would keep it simple. I mean, the more the more complicated you want to make it the more you're going to spend time programming and potentially the more expensive light programmer and LEDs you're going to need to buy so um this this is going to kind of sound old school but personally i see some really good results out of the mix it, mixed LED and HID setups even though those are kind of being phased out that kind of gives you a little bit of the best of both worlds and it's stupid simple you just have checkerboard light patterns
0: Awesome. Thanks for that. And um, yeah, we're getting a bunch of shout outs over on YouTube. Carlito says, I've listened to all 71 episodes, most of them twice. I've learned so much that I don't have any questions until I get over the obstacles I have. Thanks, y'all. Oh my gosh. Thanks, everyone. And thanks for the questions. Um, But that's it for the questions on YouTube. For now, I will pass it back to Keisha for our Instagram cues. Thank you,
1: Mandy. Oh my goodness. Binging all 70 episodes, most of them twice. Carlito, let us know when you're ready to come on the show. It's exciting. All right, we're going to go back to some questions that Angus wrote uh, uh, wrote to us. They wrote, um, "All right, he's talking about an early flower situation. Lighting DLA matches veg DLI. VPD increased to 1.2 kPa. CO2 bumped up to match PPFD around 200 plus or minus 250 ppm." Dryback is from seventy percent to forty-five to fifty percent in twenty-two hours to around one percent per hour. Runoff pH is banding within range, and EC is stacking in the substrate. When do you decide whether to go up the uh, whether to up the input EC, raise VPD slightly, reduce substrate volume, or something I'm missing? I'm trying to get a bigger dryback percentage within that twenty-two hour window. What do you guys think?
3: That sounds like a pretty healthy, stable dryback, honestly. Okay. Okay. If you're if you're gonna chase that dry bag number, you're just gonna hit a point where you can't you can't ripen up at the end of your cycle. So during early flower, that sounds great. In fact, a lot of the time if I could achieve that during late flower and actually ripen inside of let's say a one-gallon pot easily, I would be really stoked. So I would I would keep running it right where you're at. If you <laughs> if you know you if you wanna know when to go to a smaller media size, it's when you're getting less than a 15% dryback. That's, that's a pretty, pretty big key. Your dry bag is perfectly healthy. Uh, 70% sounds like you're probably in rock wool. So you're doing a great job staying up out of that hydrophobic, above that hydrophobic threshold. So I would, I would keep running with what you got and don't question too much. You know, I mean, we'll, we'll say it for the second time on this episode, that dry bag number is pretty dynamic. And, uh, this is one of those situations where, uh, mine being bigger than Jason's actually doesn't matter at all. (laughs) <laughs> the, the dryback number is not something to hang your ego on or brag about. Um, unless somehow you found a media that you can drive from 70 back to 12 and then recover and not do any damage to your plants for some reason. And then that's kind of bragging about some, some new media we haven't found yet that has amazing properties, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. What it, what it comes down to is how much nutrients and water is that plant going through? That's what's going to turn into biomass. Um, so, you know, since the dryback is, uh, you know, simply a percentage, then, you know, how, how big our media is really comes down to how, what the total volume of nutrients and total mass of, or excuse me, total
3: volume of water and total mass of nutrients that are uh, being processed by that plant. Yeah. And I mean, a good example is we can take a, let's say a 60, 40 cocoa perlite mix, put it in a two gallon pot and let's say hit 38% VWC 35. I've seen a lot of that sound about right, Jason. Now, if I've got a one gallon pot that hits 65% volumetric water content, I've got close to the same amount of actual water capacity as that two gallon pot. So that's kind of what we're looking at when we're looking at, you know, this newer generation of like one gallon cocoa blocks, for instance, is that higher water contents allowing us to grow a bigger plant inside of a smaller media and be more efficient. So even if you're thinking about pot size, the media type itself and the way it's processed has a lot to do with it. And I know we've ad nauseum talked about this, but things like uh, rockwool and cocoa, rockwool's a little more consistent, but when we're talking about a media that you're buying to grow a plant in, unless you're gonna pay 20 or $30 per unit, there's only a certain level of uh, consistency you can expect. We want them to all be really close, Remember if you're paying, you know, a small amount of money for something, you can only expect a certain level of quality. And that's where we kind of hit like this, even though we're in some of the most controlled horticulture settings that exist on earth, we're still dealing with a dynamic living population of plants that is going to take us down a road where we're playing a game of averages because we don't have a valve for every single plant, we don't have a sensor for every plant and every plant is a slightly different size.
2: Yeah. I mean, if, if you're working, maybe, you're, you know, if you're working across a number of different facilities that have different media types, you might start talking about drybacks just as a function of, um, you know, gallons or uh, up liters. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, when it comes down to actually planning out these irrigation cycles, we use these dryback numbers to immediately convert that into milliliters and see how much do we need to recover in planning that next day's P1. So sometimes if that's a little more useful to think about it and also once you get to a bigger media, you know, like if we're talking about, uh, living soil beds, for instance, that's a whole different game because 1% of 400 gallons is, uh, still a decent amount of water, you know, even though we, we've we got a smaller planet and everything. And that's where we'd see there, we want to use a little bit different type of measurement to make that more accurate, looking more at soil moisture potential. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's just important to remember too, that it, these numbers are very specific for media types and i've had to change my ranges working with the same media manufacturer just because we got a uh, a batch where the bags were filled slightly more you know if we suddenly get a batch that says one gallon but it's actually one and a half well that's up to the cultivator to go figure out that that problem has occurred and correct their calculations to reflect that
0: Awesome.
1: Thank you so much. Angus, good luck out there. Let us know how you doing. Just a quick programming note. If, you, if anybody was on YouTube, it did go down for a moment. Don't worry. We're going to have the, the whole video up tonight. So you will still be able to see the whole program. But um, yeah, just a little bit minor technical issue. But we're still here, we're still doing it. Um, and actually you have less than 10 minutes to go ahead and su- about 10 minutes to submit your questions. So if you have any live questions, we wanna hear from you. Josh just posted here in the chat. He wants to know, have you guys seen any issues with heavy metals in different brands of cocoa? And any chance of running no flush could affect those numbers? What do you think?
2: Um, you know, there's definitely a, pretty big variety of qualities of cocoa that come out um as far as heavy metals the uh, i mean it comes to mind was uh, an issue from a reputable supplier when they changed their manufacturing facility about 4 years ago um and that was that was definitely a very problematic time for a lot of cultivators that had uh, account on them as one of the, the highest quality manufacturers uh, of of the product at that time so You know, I personally haven't really tested uh, heavy metals in Cocos. Obviously, I have seen big variations depending on the source of the Cocoa as far as the um, amount of uh, salinity that is in the product. And a lot of times that just comes down to, uh, hey, was it was it coastally sourced or is it inland sourced Cocoa? Um, How much how much has that husk kind of absorbed from ocean spray, those type of things. Um, And obviously, the, the, the best manufacturers of Cocoa are doing a good job washing their product. Uh, as far as heavy metals in it you know i would hope that cocoa is probably less likely to have that type of stuff in it cuz most of the processing is an organic process uh you know we're taking a, a naturally produced husk and getting it uh typically sun dried and and chopped and washed um you know there maybe there's some processing chemicals that are involved in it that might contain some of that stuff but but none that i'm
3: familiar with at this point yeah, typically I think that would come from cocoa that was grown in contaminated areas. And, you know, we don't really see a whole lot of that because coconut's a food product and, you know, coconut, actual coconut producers have to go out of their way to have a saleable product. Therefore, they don't want heavy metal contaminated coconuts. Um, so it's it's not something we see, certainly not typically from most of the brands you've heard of. Um, but. I I do actually I really I really do think they would be paying attention to that. I mean, there are vegetable producers that have to use cocoa, even non organic ones, <laughs> that you know use salts because the areas they live in are too contaminated with heavy metals to grow saleable vegetables in the ground. So if you're wondering ever, that's absolutely a question you can ask your cocoa supplier, and indeed should. It's it's great to ask them questions and figuring out if they're sourcing. The material in a way that you agree with and works for your processes um, that i certainly know there's a, a range out there. A lot of them have some commonalities in the way they operate and some are different than others. So find the product you like and support the company you like.
2: Yeah. And, and I was going to say, if, uh, you know, if they get offended that you're asking that or, or in more interested in, uh, you know, some examinations of their product, if they get offended, then do somebody else. Yeah. They should, they should be happy to provide these type of results.
3: Yep. And, and while we're on that too, it really never hurts to start getting your incoming media tested in a lab for Aspergillus, heavy metals, pesticide contamination, anything like that. That way, at least, you know, you know, I, I've, I've worked with several clients lately that have been struggling, struggling, struggling to pass for Aspergillus in different locations. And at the end of the day, we've gone through a bunch of different variables in their facility. Then they get their incoming cocoa tested and go, oh, uh, this cocoa is not sterilized as well as we thought it was. It's, in, it's coming in with live Aspergillus spores in it. Okay, now we at least know where to attack that. We're not chasing our tail, looking around this room, scrubbing everything with bleach when in fact the room is not the issue. It's what we're bringing into it.
1: Thank you guys for that answer. Yeah, Josh made a point here. We're in a pretty tight, we're in pretty tight parameters in Canada for rec market. Mm -hmm. Totally get that. Yeah. So being mindful of the products you use, what goes into them is important. A lot of considerations there. Um, All right. Dylan just posted a question and uh, Dylan, I'll read it out. If you want to add anything to that, if you want to unmute yourself, you're welcome to, but he wrote, Hey guys, I get a pretty significant spike in humidity right after lights turn off. Any thoughts on what causes that and how to control it?
2: So it usually just has to do it. I mean, we see this uh, even worse in HPS rooms than we do LED rooms is that lights are burning off humidity. Uh, and so when we turn those lights off, uh, you're going to see a spike in humidity. Uh, trans- plants are still transpiring for a little bit of time when those lights go off. So we're getting you know, substantial amounts of uh, water vapor added to the room. And when we have a main component that's dehumidifying, the lights burning that humidity off, turn those off the humidity is just going to spike
3: yeah some of it goes back to actually why it's easier to get color in an hps room that's because your heat source disappears at the end of the day it's a lot easier for your temperature to fall down if you just turn off the heat right <laughs> rather than with leds you're managing much less heat input into the room so your ambient temperature has to be kept higher um in the you know the big thing there is like When we look at we when you think of relative relative humidity and absolute humidity absolute humidity is telling us how many grams of water are in a given space inside the air usually a cubic meter relative humidity is what percentage of the water that that air can hold at that temperature so as the temperature goes down the air can hold less and less water yet there's still the same number of grams of water inside that same cubic meter so Basically as a temperature goes down that RH, that relative humidity line skyrockets. And like Jason said, with HPS, we, we just, we're not burning off any, you know, that's the best way to think about it. Burning off your humidity. We're not doing any of that when the lights turn off, um, as far as solutions go, sometimes programming your dehumidifiers to kick in, you know, half hour, 45 minutes before the lights turn off, dry it out, uh, work with your HVAC system to make sure that your temperature doesn't suddenly fall off quite as sharply. Right at lights off, you know, one thing we've kind of encouraged people to do is uh, just kind of slowly taper that temperature light, that temperature line down. That's one thing I know a lot of people struggle with is like if your room typically doesn't have a problem cooling off, for instance, we go, hey, lights are shutting off, give me a 10 degree diff. Okay, your AC system in that size room can do it in let's say five minutes, (laughs) drop that 10 degrees. All right, that's too fast to pull the humidity out for your dehumidifiers. So, phasing out that ac slowing down that drop to happen instead of inside of 10 or 20 minutes inside of let's say three or four hours to make sure that your dehues can keep up and then also remembering that your dehues lose efficiency as that temperature goes down so really playing with that and then also you know we've science has kind of told us like hey if you sit outside all night it doesn't immediately drop 10 degrees just because the sun went down the night's also dynamic Temperature goes down, 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 down. Continues to go down until the sun starts to come up. So we don't need to have a full 12 hours at 65 degrees necessarily. We might only need two, four to really achieve that diff. So you've got a little bit of room to play with ramping that down and trying to keep that humidity under control if you have the control capability.
2: Yeah, I think this is where, you know, it's amazing how it amazes me how effective some of the really simple solutions have been in the past and where you can really start to avoid that by getting more advanced with your solutions so when we're thinking about any uh any of the uh set point based uh hvac parameters usually that's a reactive response right we're measuring something and that's going into a feedback loop that's making changes to try and achieve that set point uh you know, as humans, it's pretty cool because we can start thinking a proactive response, especially in something that's cyclical and controlled as an indoor grow facility. And so we start to think, hey, maybe we want to actually do, uh, you know, some some set points that are, are based on a, a different time parameter um, rather than just always running. Let's do a conditional control that that helps us uh, avoid those uh, spikes when there are
3: dynamic changes in the room. Mm -hmm. And, and unfortunately, one thing I've run into is, uh, usually not usually, but oftentimes that means spending more money to to accomplish what your creative vision for controlling this, this beast is going to be. Um, and that's also the, one of those lines you can start to use and say, Hey, this is a serious limitation in our system. This is where we need to focus our resources right now, because I've identified that, Hey, I've got high humidity when the lights go off. I know that can potentially contribute to mold. It's also affecting my nutrient uptake overnight. Um, let's focus on that as a limiting factor rather than getting hung up on saying, hey, we need to get new, new LEDs this year or we need to get uh, new benches. Like, well, maybe you need to spend a little bit on HVAC because you already got the new LEDs and now you have an HVAC problem.
1: It's about looking at the, the holistic, everything holistically. Love it. All right. All right. We're gonna keep on going y'all. Uh, so you got like less than five minutes. If you have any live questions, now's the time to ask. We got a write in from our good friend Pangbuds. Buds. They wrote, when ramping up EC during stretch, would a 40% dry back still be generative enough to stack sites well inside of a 50% dryback?" This is assuming the media is 100% wet at full saturation and feeding a higher EC, say 3.6 to 4.0 EC. What do you guys think?
3: That largely depends. I mean, we're talking saturation there. If you're saying 100% is fully wet, you're drying back 40 or 50%. So that largely depends on what that 100% saturation equals in volumetric water content. So if at 100% saturation, you hit 40% VWC because you had a lot of perlite, let's say, drying back 50% down to 20%, that might be about as far as you actually ever want to go. So in that case, a 40% saturation dryback <clears throat> is just fine. Um, in this situation, though, I would strongly recommend, you know, if you can doing and we we actually worked on a video to the, the other day, Mandy, about this, but determining what your field capacity is in terms of volumetric water content. And really what that's going to allow you to do is to calculate how much water in milliliters your volume actually holds, because it doesn't matter one, two, three, four, five. If it only holds one gallon worth of water, that's the whole reservoir that we have to work with. So that's what you want to know for planning all of your irrigation cycles and everything else surrounding that media. So I think you know saturation is definitely very important. You can operate very basically on saturation if you've got a uh, a load cell to put it on and measure dry and wet every day before and after you water. Um, other than that, though, I would strongly strongly recommend trying to get some sort of a sensor. And even if you don't, really establishing that baseline because, like I said, a forty percent. VWC with a 50% dryback in terms of saturation is pretty big. Or if we're looking at, you know, a Cocoa Cube that hit 60% VWC, a 50% dryback from 60 down to 30 might actually be pretty appropriate once we hit ripening and REC is in check already. And we can actually do that 30% dry, 30% VWC dryback. So start there, figure out what that is. And then again, remember that that dryback is dynamic. It's dependent on a lot of other things. So really map that out before you worry too much about the overall percentage and start looking at what is the time length that I can go off of. You know, if I have a a big pot, let's say a five gallon and I'm watering by hand, I can still crop steer, especially generatively. What that means is instead of putting on a lot of small shots, I'm putting on one or two big ones and then trying to maximize that dry back and say, okay, I know I have a pretty big reservoir, but can I go 22 23 hours 23 and a half hours in that case without watering again and that's how i know what my goal is actually going to be
2: yeah what he said
1: (laughs) amazing you guys thank you so much um just another reminder y'all anybody who's on youtube it dropped down sorry about that but we will be uploading the video this evening, so fear not. You're still going to have your your cultivation education coming your way. Um, anything else you want to say before we wrap up, Mandy?
0: Um, I will post the link to the MJ Cannabis uh, Podcast of the Year uh, voting that you guys can do for us right after this. So please vote for our office hours for Cannabis Podcast of the Year at the MJs. Thank you so much, and great show, everyone
1: yeah show us some love y'all we really appreciate it we love doing the show for you and yeah keep us posted Seth, Jason, Mandy, Chris thank you so much for another great session if you're looking for some Arroyo gear don't forget to visit arroyo.shop it's now open for business make sure you get fitted and thank you all for joining us for this week's episode of Ar- Arroya office hours we do this every Thursday and the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live to learn more about Arroyo book a demo at arroyo.io one of our experts would be happy to walk you through all the ways it can be used to improve your cultivation production process. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover on Office Hours, post questions anytime in the Arroyo app. app, Drop your questions in the chat. Send us a little post on YouTube. Shoot us an email at support.arroyo at metergroup.com. DM us. We are on on all the socials and we want to hear from you. We send everyone in attendance a link to the video. It'll also live on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And we'll see you at the next session. Thank you all so much. Have a good one.
0: Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.